want to read the last sentence of this letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in the middle of verse 14. Just the last sentence. Hear the word of God. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's it. One sentence. Peace be a peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, when I come up to a season like Advent or when we hit Easter and Lent and all of that, those of you who know me know I really try not to deviate from where I am in the Scripture. I like to be able to find passages in the context of where we're reading to... Um, to produce, to have sermons, messages um, that are thematic to the day, but also from the context of where we are. Last Sunday, we, uh, in the midst of our study of 1 Peter, found ourselves in a couple of verses in chapter 4, which related to the fact that Jesus was one who would come to judge, but his judgment would be different in the house of God than with everyone else. In the house of God, his judgment is to refine and purify, and with all who do not believe it would be to destroy. And we found that on that Advent Sunday where we were speaking of the prophets foretelling the coming of the Messiah, we realized that it was the prophet Malachi who spoke of the same thing, that there would be a judgment in the house of God and it would be one who would come, this very Messiah, who would be like a refiner's fire, who would come and purify, but to all those out of the house of God, he would destroy them. And so it was the same. So God was gracious. So I come to this passage by way of the angels. Because you remember it was the angels who said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased, with whom God is pleased, or with men upon whom God's favor rests. Or in the King James Version, it was glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, comma, goodwill to men. That's how many of us have learned that. And the difficulty with that particular translation, by the way, is simply that we have a tendency to believe what that means is that Christmas is about us being nice to each other. That is, peace among us, goodwill from one human being to another. All that's good, by the way. It's good to live at peace with each other. The Scripture even tells us that we're to live at peace with one another so long, so far as it depends on us. We're to do everything we possibly can to really live at peace with each other. But the difficulty there is that we begin then simply to use Christmas as a time to politically pray and hope for peace around the world. You may even write your representative to encourage your representative to be a person who votes for works for peace, which I suppose is a good thing to do. There are others who even protest for peace during this time of year, which is an interesting juxtaposition of words but yet I suspect effective in its own way, has its own rationale to protest. For peace privately, we may pray for peace. Relationally, personally, we may uh, meet people that we only see once a year, see at this time of year, maybe family members, and we say we should reconcile with each other. It is that time of peace. It may give us pause to think about those who are less fortunate than we, and, uh, and, and would reach out and give money and things and help at this time of year, and all that is good. The question is, is that really what the angels were announcing when they said on earth, peace? Notice what the angels were saying in the beginning, glory to God in the highest. 
on earth peace. When they were saying glory to God in the highest, they were, they were reflecting about God and His greatness, glory to Him. But there was something rather obvious about that particular piece of praise. Because they were giving glory to God because this child had just been born. And it just so happens that this child who had just been born was the manifestation of the glory of God. Here he was, God with us. Yes, he was human, for he had a human mom, but he was also divine, for he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Notice how the Apostle John puts it. Turn to John in chapter 1, in verse 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Isn't that a good sound? This, oh, this pretty strange. In fact, uh, our recently departed, uh, sounds like he died, George Boomer, uh, our youth director, called me recently. I, I shouldn't, don't tape this part. Uh, he said, you know what I don't like about the church where I've gone? And I said, I told you you wouldn't like it. But that was just, <laughs> that was just me. Uh, he'll like it eventually. But he said, he said when, when someone announces a passage of Scripture in a sermon, I don't hear pages turning. He said, I miss that. And so that's his task now to get this, to be a page-turning church. But John chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, and he, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the law was given through, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This very one who was in that manger would make known God to us. And He would make known God to us because He was God in the flesh. Just to see Him was to see God. To hear Him was to hear God. To watch him was to watch God in the flesh. And so he would make him known. Everything that was true about Jesus would be true about God. And so he would make him known. The way the author of Hebrews puts it like this. This is in Hebrews 1. You don't need to turn to this. You'd have to be really fast because I'm there. Hebrews 1 verse 3 speaks of Jesus like this. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is from him comes the very splendor of God, the radiance of God. Think about that. <coughs> that in this baby, this person who would grow and become a man and live and die and rise and so forth, that there's the very radiance of God in him. How different does that make him? Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his, that is the exact imprint of God's nature. That's who this one is. And so when the angels are, are singing glory to God in the highest, they're saying, look, look at who's here. 
The very glory of God is here. The very glory of God is among us. And because the very glory of God is among us, then on earth peace. One version puts it, among or upon those upon whom God's favor rests, or among those with whom God is pleased, or goodwill to men. God's goodwill to men. God's goodwill to us. This is His gift. So the question is, what's this nature of peace? Peter says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. What's the nature of this peace? What's the source of this peace? And for whom is this peace? Is it for everyone or, or just some? Who are the recipients of this kind of peace? When we think first of the source of this peace, we realize because this peace came in Jesus, who was sent by God, we could easily say and should say that God is the source of this peace. It doesn't come from us, but from Him. The angels were excited because Jesus was here and there would be peace on earth. Peter says, peace to you all who are in Christ comes from Christ, not from us. It's not originated in us, but it's originated in and through Him. That shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you may remember Gideon in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. He's afraid. can't believe he's going to continue to live even though Gideon is right there. Uh, the angel of the Lord is right there in front of Gideon. And, and the angel says, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. And then Gideon makes this boundary, makes this banner that says, God is our peace. God's the one, the very source of peace. In fact, turn to Numbers in chapter 6. Numbers in chapter 6, verse 22. I want to read you something that you already know, I suspect, but then one verse that you may not. Numbers chapter 6, beginning with verse 22, a very, very common benediction. Uh, I use it. In fact, it was given for that primary purpose. It was given as a benediction from the priests to the people. They were to pronounce it upon them. A benediction isn't a prayer, you know. It's, it's a bena, which means good. Diction, which means speech or word. It's a good word, and it's a good word from God. That's what a benediction is. At the end, when I pronounce the benediction, I'm doing this. I'm pronouncing something from God that's to be a blessing upon you, a good word that you're to carry with you. But listen to this one. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, that's a gift from God, that peace that comes from Him, that's His blessing. But notice verse 27. God says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, God's name is His very character. God's name is His very presence, who He is. And He says, When you pronounce this blessing upon them, you're not speaking just words, but what's happening to them is that my name is coming upon them that they will wear, if you will. It will become part of who they are. And my name is peace. And so when you pronounce this blessing upon them, what, what is happening is you're conferring, really, the very peace, the very 
presence of God upon the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance. That is, His very presence. You know, when you say someone had a good countenance today or a bad countenance today, what you're saying is there was something being reflected from them that affected you, that you noticed, that, that now you're carrying around with you as well. If you're in a room with a, a group of people who are in a bad mood, you end up leaving in a bad mood. Now you carry their countenance with you. If you end up being with a group of people that are happy and in a good mood, you carry their countenance with you. And so this God is saying that my countenance, the very, the very joy of my face is upon you. And you're to wear that. That's my name. That's what this means to have this blessing. And this blessing is a blessing of peace. They should leave that place characterized by peace. People should look at them and they say, they must be related to this God whose name is peace. They must be related to this God whose, whose countenance is upon them. Thus they live in peace. It shouldn't surprise us either that this peace would come through the Messiah. Turn to Isaiah and chapter 9. Do you notice how carefully I baited you with that compliment about looking up verses in the beginning? You notice how I'm exploiting that even now. <laughs> I'm pretty good at this, aren't I? Manipulation thing. It's true, though. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And so he's speaking of a rule. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's speaking of a rule that's coming. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So this government that's ruled that's going to come, is going to be a rule that won't end, and it's going to be a rule of peace that will come. Right? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will accomplish this. So he's saying that when this Messiah comes, when this child comes, this one whose name is Prince of Peace, he will rule, he'll sit on the throne of David, figuratively in heaven, he'll sit on the throne of David, and he'll rule, and his rule will be a rule of peace, and it will know no end. Now, as the prophets foresee what's going to take place, they, they see this peace as one of, of a real global peace, if you will. There'll be a sense in which everything, everyone, will be at peace. There'll be no hostility at all. For instance, turn uh, to Isaiah in chapter 11, just a couple of pages over, and verse 6. Isaiah 11 and verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, you know that's not normal. When lambs dwell with wolves, you end up with very well-fed wolves, generally. Right? So this is different. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Moms, 
Does that sound like a good idea? But there's this sense, you see, that even the, the, the weakness of a small child will be able to be comfortable and moms too, which I think is why the reference to the nursing child, and moms too will be comfortable with that particular playgroup. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so when the day comes, when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord and the, as the waters cover the sea, when the earth is like that, there will be peace everywhere. No hostility at all. Nothing to fear. No anxiety. Why should you? If you can play with the cobra... With the wolf and the lamb, then, then why, what is there, could there be to fear? That's poetic language to tell us there's nothing at that point to fear. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, now who could that be? Of course, that's Jesus. For David came from Jesse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day is coming, and the prophet saw it. Turn to Isaiah 65 very quickly and verse 17. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, I and the either is God. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So he's saying a day is coming when the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, when there will be a whole sense of a new heavens and a new earth. You can read about that in Revelation 20 and 21. A new heavens and a new earth transforming everything. That hasn't happened yet, has it? No. Verse 25 describes it again. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. A day is coming when that kind of peace will exist on the face of the new earth. We're not there yet. But yet Peter says, peace to all who are in Christ. So what's he mean? What kind of peace? If it's not that kind of peace where there's going to be this peace on earth where everything's together, well, what kind of peace is he speaking of, Peter? What, what kind of peace were the angels announcing? The whole deal, yes, with the Messiah, but, but what about now? Turn to John in chapter 14. For Jesus gives, offers this peace. John chapter 14 and verse 25. Hang on, we're going somewhere with this. You need all this to understand what's to come. I could tell you what's to come, but it wouldn't be as, as, as sweet. John 14, verse 25. Jesus. This is the night he's betrayed. This is the night he's telling his disciples he's going to be killed and even rise again. This is the night he tells his disciples even that people are going to come against them because they're followers of Jesus, that they're actually going to be hated because of this. So it doesn't seem like he's offering that kind of peace of everything will be hunky-dory. So verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Verse 27, Peace 
I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's saying, don't be afraid. There's a sense in which this peace should be able to take away fear. Take away this fear. Turn to John in chapter 16 and verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, now, there is a sense in which as a believer you are in two places at once. You are in the world, but you are in me. You are in the world, but you are in Christ. He said, in the world there will be trouble, but in me there is this peace. And so what, is, what peace is on Jesus' mind there? Turn to John in chapter 20 and verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Easter Sunday, if we're keeping it track by our calendar, all right? So you know the difference between John chapter 16 and John chapter 20 is huge. I mean, all that's taken place is that Jesus has died and risen again. So everything's happened since the last time we heard from Jesus about peace. So now he's, the disciples um, are in that room on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door's being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, that doesn't sound like they were having much peace. Their doors were locked, and they were living in fear, in fear that people would come against them because they were related to Jesus, essentially. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I haven't got time to deal with that last sentence. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know that I would want to be sent the way Jesus would send, was sent. He was sent as a sheep among the wolves to convert the wolves. No, but they did to him. But he's saying, peace in the midst of this, even though I'm sending you in this particular way. Peace be to you. See, that's the promise of the Messiah. That was the promise of the angels. That's why they were worshipping so. They said the very peace of God is right here and is on earth and will bring peace to men with whom God is pleased. He's going to bring peace. So it shouldn't surprise us when the Apostle Paul begins to write about peace as well. And he refers to God as the God of peace. You know, the benediction who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant da, 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 da. you should know that by now if you've been here more than three years there's a test okay that benediction the God of peace shouldn't surprise us when Paul writes of the kingdom of God and he says the kingdom of God it's not a matter of eating and drinking but it's righteousness being right with God peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. If you live under the rule of God, you live in righteousness, you live in peace, and you live in joy. Romans 14, verse 17. So God is the source of this peace. We are not the source of this peace. This peace comes to us from God through Jesus. 
And what's the nature of this peace? When we think of peace, we think of an absence of hostility. And there's some sense in which that's true, but it's very specific here, at least in the beginning. Because what this Messiah brings, what Jesus brings, is an absence of hostility between God and us, and between us and God. I mean, that's the first point of peace. That's the first step of peace. That's the very foundation, really, of this peace that Jesus brings. Because what he does is bring peace between us and God, God and us, both ways. Because there's hostility from God's side towards us. And there's hostility from our side towards God. We need to understand that. We mustn't forget that there's this hostility the Bible refers to as the wrath of God that's against us because of our sin against God. Turn to Romans in chapter 1 and verse 18. We read this. For the wrath of God I'll give you a minute. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Got it? Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, this passage isn't written about a special group of bad people. This is written about us. By very nature, our tendency, our inclination is to suppress that which is true about God and go our own way. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made so they are without excuse. That is to say that we should be able to look in the world that is made and bow before the Maker. But we don't. We suppress the truth that God exists. And God is saying to us, no matter how cloudy this may be to you, God is saying to us, how clear could I make it other than making you? If you don't know how hard that is, spend the afternoon trying to make a planet. I was just marveling the other day, putting our artificial Christmas tree together, thinking, this is so much easier for God. He didn't think, now put A in slot A and B in slot B. He just said tree. How cool is that? I wouldn't mind the whole Christmas tree thing if I could just say tree. And there it would be. And he says, aren't you being silly to, to, to suppress that truth? to spend all of this time, all of this energy, and all of this money, and all of your brilliance trying to figure out how you could have gotten here without me. You know that story about the scientist who cloned a human being, finally, at a conference. They got together and they said, um, we really don't need God now. Someone needs to go tell him. So they formed a committee of scientists and chose one to be the spokesperson. They went and met with God and said, God, we don't need you any longer because we can now do this. We can now create as you've created. And God said, boy, that's really tough, isn't it? Let me give you one more trial or at least give me the benefit to, to try this one more time. Can we go back and create as I did in the beginning? I made human beings out of the dust of the, air, of the earth. 
The scientist said, okay. So one of the scientists reached down and picked up a handful of dirt and God said, get your own dirt. <laughs> now, we spend all this time thinking about how we could have gotten here without him. And he said, how could I make it more clear? Verse 21. For all they, although they knew God, <clears throat> excuse me, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, what we should do with God in recognizing his great power and wisdom is simply fall before him and say, whatever you will, I will. Whatever you desire, I desire. Whatever you call me to, I'm there. Because you're God. And why would we deviate one little bit from anything of him? And why would we not sit in awe and wonder and worship and give him thanks? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, we began to worship the creation and all that we have rather than God himself, the maker. And he says, you marvel at a light bulb that you've invented and you forget who made the sun. That's our inclination, you see. And because of that, the sin against God... There's his wrath against us because he's not only love, but he's also light. He's not only love, but it's a holy love. It's a love that cannot disregard our sin, for he is just. And then we're hostile towards him as well. We desire for our own selves to be in a position of authority over him even. We want to be Lord of our own lives, our own existence. And when we find out that he is Lord, it makes us angry. And then as we come to grips even with that anger that he's really in the place we'd like to be, and if we come to grips with the fact that that's really true, then that could move very easily to fear. Because if he's God and I've sinned against him, then I need to stay away from him as long as I possibly can, because once he ever gets a hold of me, then I'm done for. Then he'll judge me, and then I'll be destroyed. But Christ, you see, is our peace. And he's made peace for us with God by the blood of the cross. And so when the angel said, Glory to God in the, in the highest, on earth, peace, of course, the very maker of peace was there. The very maker of peace had arrived because in himself he would take away God's hostility towards us and in himself he would take away our hostility to God because he would take away God's hostility by being, the scripture says, a propitiation for our sins by taking the penalty of our sins against upon himself so that we could be forgiven and thus God's wrath would be exhausted God's wrath would be satisfied there would be no longer a case against us in heaven because the penalty had been paid and he takes away our hostility to God because we now need not fear his judgment because it's been taken and thus we can embrace him we can believe we can go to him and say, here I am, a sinner. Please forgive me in Jesus' name. The hostility, you see, gone. And thus peace. And that's the foundation of peace for us. Peter says, 
peace to all who are in Christ. You see, this offer isn't for everyone. It isn't true for everyone. Everyone doesn't have peace. If, if they haven't it without Christ, then it's a false peace. Because judgment is coming for them. They do not know God is their caring, heavenly, gracious Father. There can be no peace in that sort of context. You see, when the Hebrews spoke of peace, shalom, they spoke of a wholeness, a wellness, a completeness in every area of life, materially, politically, socially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. In every area of life there was a a wholeness, a completeness, so much so that there needn't be any worry at all, any anxiety at all, because every area of life was, was full, was complete. And so when they wished peace upon another, it meant, I want you to be, to be happy, to be satisfied in every single area of life. And you say, well, how can that be in the context of our lives? It isn't like that. My health is bad. I don't have a job. Exams are coming. I'm going to graduate someday. I know the... Maybe not everybody. I know... I know the job market as it exists. There are people who are lost and I want to share Christ with, yet they're hostile towards me. I have all this pressure upon me. How can I have peace? And Jesus says, trust me. Because you see, in trusting Him, it means then that we are indeed accepted by God. We are those among whom God is pleased because without faith it's impossible to please God. But once we believe Him, as we come to Him in faith, believing, then you see we know that we belong to Him. And if we know that we belong to Him, then He's watching out for us. Turn to Romans and chapter 8. In verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, as He calls us to His purpose in Christ, that is, to believe, to trust, to have sins forgiven, to be reconciled to Him, to walk with Him. As He calls us to Him, and as we love Him, we know that He's our Heavenly Father, and He works out everything for good. And so if you're in the midst of a situation where you don't have a job, or your finances are bad, or your health is bad, or you're having difficulty and pressure, and so forth and so on in relationships, He says, trust me that I'm at work. Relax. Psalm 46.10 be still and know that I am God. Now you know, you can't be still and know that God is God if you think that you're under His wrath still. You can't be still and know that He's God if you think He doesn't really care for you or you haven't been reconciled to Him. There's no peace there. There's just fear. But when you know that this very one who is God has saved you, when you know this very one who is God has sent his son, when you know this very one who is God is your heavenly father because your sins are forgiven and you're reconciled to him, then you can relax. If your health is failing, be at peace. 
He's at work for your good. If your job is lost, be at peace and know that He is at work for your good. If your relationships are difficult, if you're lonely, if you're hurt, be at peace if you belong to Christ and know that He's at work for your good. And you say, what, what, what good exactly? <laughs> be at peace. Trust Him to walk through this. You see, sometimes we think we can only be at peace when our circumstances change. And He says, no, no, no. In the world, you'll have tribulation. In me, you'll have peace. Let me read just a bit more. Verse 31 in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, once you know, once you're secure in the fact that you belong to Him, that the holy God of the universe has forgiven your sins, and the only way you can be confident of that is I, if you never sin, on the one hand, or if they're paid for. So if you never sin, well, I'd be really nervous for you <laughs> if you think that, but I'll walk around with you and I'll point some out. But if you... Sins forgiven, you see, at peace with God. And if He then is for you, who can be against you? How can cancer be against you when God is for you? And you say, cancer could kill me. That's right. But if God is for you, trust Him. You'll see. He'll be for you. Does that mean my cancer will get better? I don't know. But it means if you die, He's still for you, you see. If you don't have a job, and you're a believer in Christ, understand that God is for you. But, but, but trust Him. Verse 32, Who he did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? That is, He's proven it to us. He said, listen, I've already given you my Son, and I've already given you my Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of all that's to come. If I wouldn't spare giving my own Son, then... Why would I spare anything else? Trust me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elected is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He was at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying, listen, all those things that can happen, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, even death. He's saying, don't worry. I still love you, God says. I'm still for you. I'm still at work. Trust me. No, verse 37, and all these things and more were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever's happening, if you're a believer in Christ, peace. Thus Jesus could say, I better skip that. In John chapter 14, verse 27, again. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, the world gives us circumstantial peace. When we're at peace because of what the world gives us, it means for that moment in time, everything seems fine. And quite frankly, it's rather nice when that happens. Quite frankly, it's rather nice when the weather's nice, and you have a day off, you're relaxing, the coffee's warm, the newspaper's there, nothing to do, you feel at peace. Or your health is good, or exams are over, and you actually think you did pretty well. You have a measure of peace till grades come. Peace the world gives. Your health is good. Job's going okay. Relationships are all right. Kids are tucked in bed. Whatever that is, you're at peace at that moment in time. But that peace flees. When circumstances change, when health gets bad, and it will for us. I mean, I'm not a pessimist nor a prophet. That's just true. We get sick. We die. It happens to everybody. Financially, things go up and down. Relationally, things go up and down. We know that. And so there isn't any real secure peace there. That's the peace the world gives. And once you get used to it, then it just pulls the rug right out from under that peace. And Jesus says, now if you can trust me, believe me, that I am your peace because I've made peace with God and you because of me are joined together with God. You're united with Him, reconciled to Him. He is for you as circumstances change. You can have peace. That's its foundation. In trusting Him. One last verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. And here's what I'm after, this little phrase. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. That is continuously, however you need it. But it comes from the Lord of peace. It comes from the Lord of peace. And there can be no peace, you see, without the Lord Jesus. Because you see, to have this kind of peace means that first and foremost, in our minds, we must be at rest that we really do belong to God. In our minds, we must be at rest that we really, really do belong to God. If we're not secure there, if we're not at rest in our own minds about that, there'll be no peace. Because while Christianity and while being related to Jesus is an emotional experience, it's more than that. At its foundation, it's truth. You see, many people during this time of year come to church because it feels really good. And it feels peaceful. And it brings back memories. And, and quite frankly, we're a rather nice group of people. We're, we're rather nice to be around. And so people come and they go, boy, they're nice. They talk to me. We sing a little. Those old Christmas carols I just like. And it reminds me of my past and so forth and so on. And so we have these good feelings. But you see, those won't sustain peace. What sustains peace is to really know that Christ has died for you and you've embraced it, you believe it, you've settled it, you know it. And so in your own mind, you have to give yourself that quiz and say, do I really know that? Do I really know that Christ has died for me? My sins are forgiven. God does love me. 
I belong to him. And then you see you must answer your own conscience. And you must answer even Satan himself as he brings up this word that goes something like, you claim to be a Christian? You really think that God loves you and, and you're reconciled to him when you think that, when you say that, when you behave like that? What's your basis to even think that you belong to him? And if you begin defending yourselves, like saying, well, I'm not usually this bad, or it was the caffeine, or when I'm around him, he just makes me feel this way. If that's your deal, you're in trouble. Because you'll never win that fight. Your conscience nor Satan will ever be satisfied. Continue this argument over and over again. The only linchpin to this argument, the only way to settle it, is I know I'm united with God because of Jesus and what He did. That's it. That settles it, and that's our peace. That's what we keep going back to. And even this morning we have evidence of this peace before us. It was the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed that he not only taught about peace, but told his disciples that it was his peace that he would give to them. As we mentioned before, the world has said that there's a peace there, but Jesus said, this peace I give is different. It won't escape you. It will never leave you. Because in the world you'll have tribulation. But don't worry, he said, I've overcome the world. Trust me. Live in me. And in that night he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, believe me, trust me, place your whole hope, destiny in me. And your sins are forgiven because I've paid for them. I've paid the debt. And you see, it's in that, in that trusting of Christ, that we receive this peace. Because this peace isn't for everyone. Not everyone experiences this peace. It's only those who are in Christ. It's only those who trust Him. It's only those who believe in Him. They're the only ones who receive this peace. Everything else is a false peace. Because there's only one way to know that God is for you. There's only one way to know that you're accepted by Him. And that is through sins forgiven. And the only one who has paid those sins is Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, this table set before us reminds us so of the Lord Jesus. Not only that, He attends this table. He is here. Not physically, of course, but spiritually, He is here. And it's in Him that we receive peace. So I pray that you would set apart these elements in a way that would enable us to by faith feed upon our Lord Jesus Himself and to receive from Him peace. That you would set apart these elements in such a way 
that we would know him better, experiencing more deeply, and know his great provision of peace, that though we may have trouble materially, physically, relationally, emotionally, socially, that still he is for us. And we can trust that he's at work for our good.